Hi everyone, this is Ray Otis and you are listening to Plundergrounds. Today I have a special guest, Angus, who's been running our 5th edition campaign over the last several weeks. I wanted to talk to him about the campaign world he's built, so we'll get right to it. Hi Angus, thanks for joining me on Plundergrounds. Hey Ray, this is great. Thanks for inviting me. So, Angus, you've been running a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game for JJ and Dan and I for, I don't know, a better part of three months now. Is that right? That's about right. And you created a, a Norse-inspired campaign world. And we were remarking just the other day, uh, we had finished up kind of a, a piece of a longer story arc. And we're going to take a break and switch GMs for a little while and then come back to it later. We had remarked that your world was really cool because not only did it definitely feel Norse inspired, but it didn't feel like a Norse inspired corner of the Forgotten Realms. It definitely felt like its own living and breathing campaign world. And I wanted to just kind of talk with you about how you achieved that. Cool. What's the first bit of secret sauce that you have for me here? Well, the the first bit of secret sauce, uh, I think, truthfully, has to go with both of our backgrounds. And mind you, we've had several discussions along these lines, and I don't believe either of us grew up when we were playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, affectionately known as First Edition. We weren't those pre-packaged module kids. That's right. We were world building from the get go. So we basically had the core rule books, and then we just let our imaginations go wild. For me. I'm a history major in background, and I'm also the son of a mom who had an elementary uh, education uh, degree and a minor in library sciences. So immediately, that screams research geek. (laughs) So along that route, uh, when taking a look at something I'm very passionate about, I tend to go down the rabbit hole. Thank you, Alice in Wonderland. And along those lines, I think what's critical is finding out what indeed was the source material for inspiring current products that are out there. So I think that's just a natural good place to start. For me, if we're talking, and we're talking Norse background here, I'm a huge fan of history and mythology. So I immediately went to uh, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, and to his credit, he translated the prose edda into easy to understand prose actual english Uh, it isn't laborious to go through the stories are entertaining and it's a really easy read so that was step one for you and getting you excited about building a world around that absolutely and in and in addition to that i loved researching medieval history so that was already part of my background and flavor of what I was bringing to the table. So what I was doing here was just focusing in on a certain period of history culturally and, and zoning in. Mm-hmm. I quickly discovered, because I, I'm huge also into uh, Celtic myths and legends, uh, I saw a lot of parallels between Celtic mythology and Norse mythology. I also pulled from that because there were a lot of direct translations of tales, but just change the name. It's amazing how some of these myths are universal. Mm -hmm. So you were combining both a mythological source materials and historic source materials. Correct. So uh, another great source there was Celtic Myths and Legends by Rolleston, 
as well as, and this is a shout out to uh, Jeremy Crawford, actually, who's the lead rules designer currently for fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, he is big into Celtic and Irish mythology and uh, the uh, age old tome. And I think you can actually get this for free, both on Kindle and over on iBooks because it's public domain is uh, Gods and Fighting Men, uh, the story of the uh, Tuadwana and the uh, Fianna of Ireland. And that basically tells those epic tales of those myths and legends of Ireland. Okay. All right. You've given me all kind of links I got to put in the show notes now. <laughs> oh, I'll send them over to you. <laughs> Excellent. That's what I was fishing for. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know me. I love curation. So uh, I'll hook you up. That's great. So, so you have all these source materials gathered together. You mentioned at the top of this that you kind of like looking at modern stuff and then tracing back what where they got their inspiration from. Did you look at any particular modern Norse-inspired settings? I did. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I uh, backed one on Kickstarter. Uh, and it was called Journey to Ragnarok, an adventure setting for 5th edition. Huh. It's actually done by an Italian team who chose for their base materials translations of the Prosetta as well as uh, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology and pulling all those materials uh, together to give an authentic journey from you know level 1 through 20 all throughout the various realms within Norse mythology. Nice. To the credit, it's, it's impressive. It's a really well done uh, work. The other game, actually, that I took a look at was uh, Fate of the Norns, uh, Ragnarok. Okay. That was great for uh, looking at story. And, and again, with being a, a curator, I, I have no issue with when you're being a DM or GM, judge, referee, you know, you name the title, and you're helping your table, your players to get the most enjoyment out of the game, actually plucking elements from some of those other uh, settings and games and, and then making them your own. Oh, yeah. But that's the key is making it your own. So therefore, having a good base knowledge of that source material is critical to see how those more modern authors chose things, how they cherry picked to flavor their particular campaign or module setting. Right. Another one, which is kind of a mashup is the Midgard world book, which I know anyone who's played Pathfinder, and now they've also done a translation for fifth edition players. Great, great campaign setting from Cobalt Press. Yeah, And right there, you've got a section within that book, even though it says Midgard, it, it really isn't a true Norse setting. It actually has a section of that world that is diehard Norse, but they also pull from a lot of Central European and Mediterranean mythologies into more of a mashup continent setting. And then I'd say the last one that uh, I'd recommend is the Five Temples of the Earth Mother, uh, part one, Life and Moon. And that is actually set in the Forgotten Realms, but it is focused in on the Moonshea Isles, where if, if you are uh, comfortable with the Forgotten Realms and you grew up playing the pre-done modules, There'll be a, an affinity there because of that, but you'll also get that flavor of that Celtic and also Norse mythologies, depending on where on the Moonshea Isles you're currently adventuring. If you can't uh, creatively steal in this context, then where, then where can you steal? I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all good for the table. Exactly. I mean, we're truly in the golden age of RPGs, and that's just a testament right there that I could rattle those off. 
Oh, yeah. We're so spoiled for choice. Just about any setting you can think of is out there. I will also point out that you you were talking kind of a mashup about different cultures along with the Norse culture. Yeah. People have this mistaken view of cultures in general anyway, that they're more insular or isolated than they really are. You know, we tend to think like the way TV is taught us to think like Star Trek, you know, they go to a planet and it's all one geography type and all one type of, you know, all the aliens are... Uh, of one type. But in history, we know that the Vikings went all over the place and they definitely got all the way down, you know, into Byzantium and and to Ireland and different places. So they are going to have some of that culture seep in um, and interact with those cultures. And there's no reason to think that they were purely any one particular thing. Uh, agreed. And I'll just Ray, I'll give one prime example of this. And I know you, having your arts background, will appreciate this. If you take a look at the knot scrolling that is in a lot of the Viking shields, Mm -hmm. that same knot work can also be found throughout a lot of Celtic weaponry, tapestries, shields. Sure. It's, you know, so that's just one example where, whoa, wait a second, here's a shared human experience. And they're even artistically expressing themselves in a similar manner. So there's a lot to unpack there. But as an artist, one thing I would say is even the tools make a difference. So when you're working the same kinds of materials, you know, stone, and you're using the same kinds of tools, you are to some extent going to get similar marks, right? Similar designs. I'll name a point of reference that I really like for this period, and I think you've read it as well, um, which is Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, which became the, became the movie The 13th Warrior. Yes. Oh, love yeah. it. Yes, yeah, great. That's a great movie love it. and a great book. And, it, and it's factually accurate in how the Vikings didn't always sail around England and France and everything to get down into other areas of the of the continent. Uh, they would also go overland through Russia to get down to the Mediterranean. Well, we're getting a little far afield. You've named a whole bunch of source materials. So there's this, if if you're trying to use too much from from all of these, it would have been a huge mess, but it wasn't a huge mess. So I got to think that you went through one method or another of paring it down. So either you started with a bunch of stuff and pared it down, or you were selectively cherry picking from the outset. How did you decide which material goes in and what doesn't? Sure. Here's how I broke it down. I first took a look at the lay of the land and then curated. What I did is I divided it into three pots, okay, or, or three buckets. The first bucket were sources of inspiration and background. So this is where I'm going to build the foundation of my world and my story. So that Norse mythology, the Celtic myths and legends, gods and fighting men, I'll even go to TV, the show Vikings, the show also found over on Amazon Prime, Britannia, great sources for building that background and story. Yeah, for sure. Then I said, okay, I now have to support this story in a gameplay campaign setting. Well, where can I find functional reference materials along those lines? Well, (laughs) went back to second edition and Zeb Cook put out a fantastic Vikings campaign source book. Huh. immediately grab that on drive through RPG. Same thing, Celtic's campaign source book that came out for second edition. Uh, and it was done by another author who was actually a Celtic cultural historian and anthropologist in the background and then wrote this for TSR at the time. Grab that too. Well, let me, st- let me stop you right there. What were the name of those books? Sure. Uh, Vikings campaign source book 
and then Kelts campaign source book. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. But again, I'm going to send these links over to you. Those sound amazing. So everyone listening can just click on them. Oh, they're great because we're, when I was coming up with all those names for all those characters, yeah. guess what? They came out of that book because they had those ready tables right there for all of those names. And it was all culturally sound and backed up through fantastic research. Mm -hmm. So then the last thing, and this was either cherry pick or leave alone, was sources for examples of Rennie play in campaigns. So I had mentioned the journey to Ragnarok. I plucked some of the monster examples or encounter examples from that. And then I customized it for our world setting that we played in. With Fate of the Norns, I looked at that more for inspiration for runes and how runes were worked into story play in a practical standpoint. The Midgard World book, I pretty much just left alone after taking a look at it. Mind you, it's wonderful. And I recommend anybody who wants to play a very sound and enjoyable world and a well-written uh, campaign tome, that Midgard book is wonderful. And then The Five Temples of the Earth Mother, that one was just to get a feel for how certain characters, as it related to monster encounters, were portrayed in encounters so uh that was helpful i was going to ask you if you got the runes from fate of the norns yeah yeah i, I knew you'd pulled the runes out at the table a couple times for various in-story things and i thought oh but i bet he pulled that from fate of the norns because i know that that's their resolution system right exactly mm -hmm. yes. very cool all yes. right yeah so so after putting those assembling those three buckets then mm -hmm. you know i went about uh, building the world and all of the name naming conventions for the world, again, I can go to those source books. When you look at the breakdown of what the actual kingdoms within the world and how they were named and some of the names of those kings, that actually just goes back to historical times uh, around the, well, the hundreds, if you will. So let's say from the 300s to the 900s. Okay. Those sweet spots. So I actually picked historical names out of there, historical names of kingdoms, and and then mashed them and and made them fit the world and the storyline. Now you you brought a map to the table that looked a bit like a Google Earth kind of map. Yes. What? How big is when you say you built your world? Like how big of an area did you try to sort of describe in your mind or in your notes? Sure. In my mind and notes, essentially, I laid out, and this is pretty easy for folks to get their heads wrapped around. Uh, you know, all of Scandinavia, the size of all of Scandinavia, mm -hmm. and then all of the British Isles. Okay, right. Yep. You know, from, from a practical working standpoint. And then I could expand that world accordingly if I ever ran out of geography. But frankly, there, that, that's enough of a wide swath and a lot of interaction going back and forth. Oh, yeah. That I, I really don't see a need to expand any further. So basically, Normandy to Finland, you kind of that whole pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Nice. And with, with Iceland thrown in there, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. At some point, you must have gotten on your D&D &D Beyond and pick which elements from those you are going to allow into the campaign world for us players in terms of, you know, what character races we could pick and all that kind of thing. What point did you do that? Correct. Actually, I gave birth to this world about two years ago. So before we even started playing, okay, I, I wanted to really make it, uh, you know, Norse and Celt centric and therefore getting, I, I, I said, no, no to the dragonborn. 
Of course, with this being a base neutral world, there would be both good and evil represented as far as traditional classes were concerned. Mm -hmm. So I, I really looked to the mythology to validate what things were mentioned in there and supported. So yes, we've got goblinoids in there. We have trolls, but trolls as defined by what D&D uh, shows as ogres. Right. So some of that translation, because of the familiarization with the mythology, was critical. So when I looked through D&D Beyond, immediately by confining my world, I could throw out about a half to two-thirds of the monsters there, which was helpful. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because in, at, very, at the very beginning, it didn't feel all that restrictive to me. It felt like you included just about everything. But then you're right. As I, as I sort of worked my way around in it, I could see that there was probably about a third to half of the material Yeah, yeah that was kind of out of bounds. But it, it, it was in no way restrictive. That's kind of what I meant to say. It never felt limited. Yeah. No, not at all. And, and, and actually, it's a bit of a respite for folks who have been all Tolkien'd out, and mind you, you know I'm a huge fan of Tolkien, as you are too, and, and also Michael Moorcock. And, mm -hmm. But by not having orcs in this world, by not having halflings in this world, by not having dragonborn in this world, I, you begin to remove some of those D&D uh, &D traditional conventions and races that were thrown into the game, and, and many people get joy out of it. I, I take nothing from that. Mm -hmm. But at least here from a DM ha management and culture management standpoint of this world made it easier for me, actually, by putting that restriction in there. Right. I want to kind of hit this point really hard because sure. I, it's not which things you leave out. So you're not saying, oh, the, the Dragonborn are broken. I don't want them in there. It's correct. Um, you left them out because they didn't fit with the flavor you wanted. That's correct. So it could have as easily been uh, humans or something that you left out. So... The point is that just by leaving out just some slice of the D&D &D pie, even if it's only 10% or 15% of like the races or creatures or whatever, you can really create something different just with that. Just Because the, there are some, so many things that are iconically D&D &D that the absence of them makes the world feel like not D&D &D in some ways. Right. It's true. And not having beholders or rust monsters or, or exactly. uh, not not having tieflings or dragonborn no elithids no elithids no githyanki no githyanki you take some of those things out and and maybe just emphasize then what's left right so i think ravenloft is a bit like this you know ravenloft is a very flavorful setting and it does it by taking out some of the things that are more um like gygaxian in terms of D D and emphasizing things that are a little more in line with the horror very true Okay, so let's. I, I want to talk a little bit about goblins. Have you got anything else you want to say about the world before we get to uh, what I care about, my character? <laughs> yeah, matter of fact, I, I think this will end beautifully uh, to goblins, and, and that is with the flavor of this world. And someone, you know, folks might be thinking, "Oh my gosh, Angus, you you just you know got rid of as a DM for me uh, a significant amount of my encounter arsenal. What am I to do?" Well, I, here's a reminder. Every race that exists can be undead. Uh -huh. Okay, so there's number one. Number two, all of the fae are represented here uh -huh. because that's within that, that pantheon and, and the mythology of those cultures. You also have, by extension then, all of the uh, creatures and gargantuan ones of ancient myth and lore uh -huh. that existed 
in those pantheons too. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a bit to work with uh, when all is said and done. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I mean, you know, it's like the spice rack, right? Yeah, you don't want to throw every spice in the rack in. Uh, you just throw in. You throw in a blend that works. And so for for your campaign, things like storm giants and skin changers and hags, yep, uh, and and sea creatures and th- you know they all those fit really well. And by emphasizing those and taking out the few things that just absolutely don't fit, and then the stuff in between, coloring it a little differently um, when you need something a little more exotic. That's that I feel like. From a player perspective, that's what I see in your campaign. That's what I see you doing. Thanks. That's high praise. I appreciate that. Well, and so like, let's talk about things in between because I feel like goblins are a little bit in between. You said the fae are there. Right. And of course, in Norse mythology, you have a range of creatures under that umbrella, right, uh, of the fae. Yes. So dwarves and goblins and elves in general, they really aren't as different from each other as they are in D&D lore. Right. They're a little bit more cousins. True. Very, very true. Yeah. So when I chose to play a goblin, I think the first time we sort of had a mind share on this was, I said, you know, not like green-skinned Warhammer goblins or D&D goblins, but more like Harry Potter goblins. Right. And you said, yes, absolutely. And so I was thinking of the goblins more as creatures of the fae, less charismatic, <laughs> stunty, but uh, very, very clever, good craftsmen, silversmiths, weaponsmiths, clever at making machines um, or, or just contraptions. You know, still live mostly underground, but have also adapted themselves into the world of men and probably exploited some very key power positions, uh, you know, by controlling commerce and some things like that. Yes, yeah, and I really appreciated the chance to kind of help you fit goblins into the setting. It was great, because I, I think we were of one mind on that one, uh, meaning every one of the non-human races, I shouldn't say all of them, but humans are, are the youngest within this particular world. Mm-hmm. So therefore, with placing the goblins in a more ancient race setting allowed for them to be more technologically advanced, being more one with the world and providing them with uniqueness and actually a place of certain cultural advantage, Mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating and a different spin of what the majority of players would look at a, you know, a lowly goblin uh, being well, I think one of the themes that really has come out in the game, uh, and this is partly through the character choices that we made, has been that the rise of humans means that the more magical races are really find themselves in one of two camps: either reactionary, wanting to go back to the old ways, perhaps wanting to see the fall of mankind, right, or proactively trying to fit into that world and exploit it a little bit. And so I'm a, I'm a goblin, uh, a goblin arcane trickster thief. And my role is more to try to fit in and exploit and change with the times. And I think that's where the race comes down for the most part. JJ is playing an Asimir who has a mom who was a Valkyrie. Yep. And Dan is playing a Goliath, which is a race of half giant people that are descended from storm giants, essentially. Right. And so each one of us has uh, ties to the old world, to the kind of strange ways. We also have a foot in the human world. And as such, we're interestingly poised right in the middle between those and and become bargaining chips. (laughs) Oh, 
it is rich tension. Yeah. I, and I love that from a DM standpoint. It makes it really, really exciting for me to interact with you guys on a session by session basis in doing that collaborative storytelling, knowing that you have this push pull happening individually and then also as a collective. Mm hmm. Yes. And so uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was you called into my show um, a couple episodes ago where you're talking about balance and had a response to that. And you ended up talking about spotlighting, which I had, yeah. I had talked about in my balance episode, moving the spotlight around. You also talked about what Colin Spike Pitt Green would call sourcing the table, right? which is pulling ideas out of players or, or giving players room to invest ideas into the world. And first of all, I wanted to say, now you have to just step back and take a compliment here. I wanted to say that you do an amazing job at this. You're kind of subtle with it and graceful at it. I mentioned that I'm, I'm much more brutal with the way I move the spotlight around. I do smash cuts and things like that. And your way doesn't lack drama, but a lot of the times the way you, you kind of seamlessly move that spotlight around and all of a sudden realize that, oh, it's kind of like I'm on the spotlight now, but I don't. I can't point to the point in the fiction where it turned, like where you where you made that uh, shift. And so you're very good at that. And not just within sessions, but from session to session. I want to give two examples. The first one is one of the very early episodes, and this was within a session. A lot was going on. Uh, JJ's character was getting a rune reading from an NPC that has become kind of important in the campaign, an old shamanistic type figure. And I was kind of in the background. Uh, that was kind of his moment. But in the background, I made a report to my king, and I don't know if this is relevant, but my background story is that I'm the brother to the king's first wife, the goblin king's first wife of eight, and <laughs> that I'm kind of a nuisance <laughs> around court, and that he sent me out on, it, it might be important missions, it might be busy work, I'm not sure which, <laughs> to get me out from underfoot. But I wanted to make a report back to him, and I said, oh, I'm going to find a goblin servant here and pass him a scroll and, and there on the spot I made up a little idea of having a, a ribbon of paper on which you could write with pinpricks so that you could write surreptitiously and you could read it surreptitiously like you could read those strips in the dark by touch or conceal them about your person easily so it's kind of a braille like system sure but I kind of inserted that into the campaign on the fly and I felt like you gave me a lot of room to do that but it was a very quick moment and I kind of live for that stuff. That stuff for me is more fun even than, you know, getting a blow in in combat a lot of times. Thanks. I love when the ideas and the expansion of story comes organically from the table. Yeah. I despise railroading. Yeah, <laughs> we all do. I, I don't like it when I'm railroaded as a player and I am hypersensitive to it as a DM around the table, making sure that everyone has an opportunity when it presents itself to seize and emotionally invest further into that collective story. It's like being a good listener. I would say that as a GM, you're a good listener. You know when to sit back and let the players have a few moments and let things develop a little, and then you can latch on to one of those things and go with it. So I mentioned before a little bit about scroll work and that being like a moment within a session, within a scene, but from session to session. So like we had gone through a couple sessions where we were out in the wild and uh, my goblin isn't probably at his best in the wild. No, <laughs> yeah, that's not where his skill set is going to be uh, shining. Right. Right. And 
but it was fun. I enjoyed those sessions. It's not like I, w- I felt like I had nothing to do or anything like that. It's just that the session as a whole, if we're going to pick a person that it was, uh, you know, the spotlight was on that person for most of the session, it was, it was one of the other two for those sessions. But then, then we kind of turned and we went into the Goblin Kingdom to get some information. And I had like a tour de force kind of session with my character where I really got to shine. Oh, it was brilliant you know, like at least two thirds of that. And I felt so guilty about it the next week. I was like intentionally keeping myself in the background because I was like, wow, I had such a good time last week. I'll let them have a good time, you know, this week. And I think that's important to, to balance not only that, you know, within a half hour or within an hour, letting everybody have a chance to shine, but also understanding that sometimes, and this is both a player and a GM, just kind of understanding sometimes when it's one particular player's turn for the night, it's that character's story for the night. True. And the brilliant uh, that I was referring to in my remark was actually how the entire group played that session. Meaning you felt that spotlight. Yes. However, I guarantee that both JJ and Dan were getting something out of the exploration of this new territory. Mm-hmm. They already had that familiarity about being out in the wild and in the sacred hunting grounds where they were previously. They already knew the central city of Farabay. Whoa, now they were coming into this new strange realm, this goblin kingdom. And there, there you were as that cultural ambassador, you know, leading the crew in there. And I, as I was scanning the table and getting the body language, they were kind of in awe of what was being described to them, <laughs> which, you know, I want to thank you for that because, you know, I'm giving you the heads up. Hey, look, uh, because uh, of your background and being a good prompter around the table, anytime that you're GMing Dungeon World, you're, you're big into that riffing, that collaborative play, that world building yourself that you constructed such a vivid description. And we, you know, we both worked on it together. Mm-hmm. There was a nice back and forth that I think it, it gave them a very cool experience going, wow, so this place exists in here too? Oh, this is different. This is cool. It's amazing how a place can all of a sudden feel real just with the addition of a few details. Yes. That cavern world of the goblins and their highways feels pretty real to me now, partly because of the way we describe the the highways, but also like, so in the city can help but share a little bit of this, sure. you know, in the, you go into these kind of big caverns and there's within the living stone of the walls, there are houses uh, carved. And I mentioned the, the Petra temple yes. um, in Indiana Jones, last crusade is where everybody knows that from, but uh, I can imagine that underground. And then like the whole layout being uh, a bit like it's medieval Italian feudal families and that each uh, house had a decorative motif. So my house has the beetle, yes. you know, is our decorative motif and other houses have, uh, you know, a bee or a, a, rat. a dagger or just different things. Yeah. Rat worked into the, into the uh, stonework of their houses and the, elevators and you know drains and different ways of conveying things Uh, we had a good time with that i really enjoyed it and just as a consequence you know now i can visualize it really well and feel kind of grounded in the setting yeah i have greatly appreciated that collaborative effort there in really making that goblin kingdom come alive for everybody Mm -hmm. that was very very cool and now gives me as a dm a very rich environment to come back to Mm -hmm and do some further exploration and some sessions down the line. All right. So let me recap for a minute. We hit source material and and doing your research and kind of uh, picking important documents that you're inspired by. We talked about collaborative invention at the table and how that helps make a world go. 
uh, in between those two using selective bits of the stock D and D world, like being selective about what stock D and D things make it into the campaign. So those are kind of three tactics that made your world a, a living, breathing campaign setting. What is there any other secret sauce that we should know about anything else that you want to hit? I think more than anything else. And, and, you know, we let's strip away D and D for an instance and, you know, make this system agnostic. And, and that is to say, Whatever you build, first research that base source material that has inspired you to create this world. Get a firm understanding of the interaction of the various elements there, whether they be cultural elements, whether they be character elements, equipment, you name it, creatures. Mm-hmm. then roll into how am I going to apply this within this game mechanic that it doesn't come through as being stereotypically game X, so you name your system that you're playing in at any given time, mm-hmm. but that it feels like a unique experience to everyone sitting around that table and has been made real by having those cultural nuances just saturate into the storytelling and the background of the of the DM. Uh, and I think where I was able to help reinforce this away from the table, and I would encourage any DM to do this if they can invest in the time, because I really feel this is investing in your players at the same time, because we all work, we're all busy. But keeping that journal, that session journal, Mm -hmm. looking at every session, because you as DM know what happened during that session. So write the base journal and then encourage your players to add to it between sessions. That way you have a common reference point heading into the next session and all of the players begin to feel the building, the swelling, the investment of of the world, and it becomes more real for folks. Mm -hmm. We play once a week, and that's just close enough together that the world kind of doesn't die in between sessions if you don't do anything. Right. But it's still better if you have some kind of communication outside of that. Can you imagine playing every other week, you know, unplugging and plugging back in? You lose so much. You just lose so much from time to time. You have to kind of rebuild the energy and everything. So if you can keep it going with that journal and some in character bits. Yes. That really, it keeps the world powered up as it were. It does. It it spun up for sure. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, Hey, thank you for talking with me about this. Oh, really appreciate it. Anytime. It's been a great couple months. Yeah. And I think that we're taking a break just to the right point. You know, they always say uh, leaving wanting more. Yes. We're all confused right now. There's so many <laughs> things going on that we're like, we feel like we're right on the edge of understanding. But uh, at the same time, you know, it seems like there's some contradictory things and we're trying to make sense of it all. But we had a big moment the other night and, and uh, it felt like a good time to a good time to lay it down. But I know we'll all be ready to pick it up again in a couple months when it when uh, when when JJ's ready to lay down the GMing hat. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. I'm Ray Otis, and this has been an episode of Plundergrounds. The opening and closing music is You Can Use by Captive Portal. All of my project links can be found at www.rayotis.com. 
That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for rest monsters. 